Hello, and welcome to another episode of Immigration and Mobility Decoded, a podcast about business immigration and global mobility. I'm Eric, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host, Finn. Uh, We're recording this on August 8th, and Finn, how's it going? Not too bad, Eric. Very, uh, very stormy here in Maine today, so just hanging out inside and a good day for podcasting. How are you doing? Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, yeah, start of start of a new month. Uh, you guys are getting uh, some pretty bad storms up there, right? Isn't like the entire East Coast under like a severe storm watch or something? Yeah, I think they just throw on those labels for clicks. <laughs> you know? But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a storm. It's, yeah, it's definitely a storm. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Uh, hey, well, Finn, look, uh, you know, we got to catch up on a couple of uh, immigration news items from the last few weeks before we hop into uh, today's episode. Uh, but before we hop into those news alerts, as always, just want to remind everyone that if you are not currently subscribed on YouTube or following us on Apple or Spotify, you know, definitely uh, do so. Uh, helps keep the show growing uh, so we can keep releasing great content and conversations with uh, industry professionals uh, who, you know, who specialize in immigration and mobile and global mobility. Uh, you know, definitely want to keep those conversations uh, coming for everyone. So uh, give us a like, give us a follow, subscribe, all that good stuff. Um, but Finn, on the topic of immigration news, uh, a couple of big items uh, that I wanted to uh, quickly bring up with you. Uh, first and foremost, at the end of July, USCIS announced a second H-1B cap lottery. Uh, people were a little bit unsure if USCIS was going to move or was going to uh, do this move, but they did. And then they uh, conducted that lottery. Um, ben, what insights do you have as to why uh, USCIS decided to move forward with a second lottery? And did the second lottery tell us anything else? I think it's too early to tell. I mean, we know if we go back a couple of months, we remember the big news, you know, USCIS, USCIS released a couple of weeks after the initial cap lottery, uh, some information on how, um, you know, kind of an unbelievable number of registrations uh, were duplicate registrations. Um, and that that was really mucking up the lottery system uh, quite a bit. So it's, it's no surprise that, that USCIS was was, was forced to do this second lottery to fill the available number of slots. Um, that said, despite, you know, the, the, the duplicate registrations, uh, you know, in the H-1B cap this year, there's demand still far outstrips supply. There's still far more, uh, you know, individuals and companies that are trying to uh, get an H-1B visa than there are visas available. So hopefully there's, you know, a handful, uh, it's hard to know how many, a handful who are selected in the second lottery and have a chance to get their application adjudicated so they can get that, that covered H-1B. Got it, got it. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you know, we keep bringing up the demand far outpaces supply and, you know, we're seeing uh, in real time other countries like Canada swoop in and take advantage of that, uh, you know, with them launching their recent program and, uh, you put together a reaction video with Daphne and Jim, which is available on our YouTube channel. And the, uh, I think they filled the 10,000 slots within a matter of like two days. So, you know, uh, yeah, a lot of movement there. And then Finn, there was another update regarding EAD cards that uh, you came across on uh, X. 
x.com or x formerly known as twitter uh what do you yeah. have for us there i guess the x label is, is sticking it's been a couple of weeks now so we might you were to... you were saying they were going to change it but man i don't know about that one anymore yeah don't listen to my predictions i guess on uh, anything <laughs> anything social media related uh, no uh the the ombudsman office uh over at uscis uh just put out a tweet yesterday that you know i, th- I thought was worth flagging to the audience uh, that USCIS has resolved uh, EAD card production delays um, and that EAD cards, you know, from here on out should now be produced uh, and, and mailed to the approved applicant, the approved foreign national uh, within one to two weeks after an I-765 approval. Uh, so yeah, a lot, lot of, you know, um, a lot of nuance there, um, but for anyone who has applied for an EAD uh, in the past few years, they may be familiar with the fact that getting that physical card so that, you know, you can actually go and work on the EAD uh, can sometimes be um, a bit of a, a, a bit of a stressful process uh, because there are delays with it actually getting mailed to you. So uh, hopefully USCIS is true to their word and, and anyone who applies here on out for uh, an EAD card will, uh, will get the actual physical card within one to two weeks of the approval uh, of the application. Nice. Appreciate that update, Finn. Um, and then just quickly wrapping up our intro part here. Um, you know, Finn, uh, one, uh, I've been seeing a steady stream of stories um, and I'll leave it for our listeners to, you know, just kind of determine their own, their own thoughts on it. But I will say uh, there's been a steady stream of stories coming out of Florida uh, which, as we know, uh, the state passed an immigration law and it went into effect on July 1st. And, you know, articles from Wall Street Journal, New York Times, NPR, uh, seemingly weekly are talking about some of the, we're starting to see some of the effects of that uh, law, um, where, you know, one of the big ones, it requires employers, uh, you know, who employ 25 or more employees to uh, use the E-Verify system, among other provisions. And, you know, we're, see, we're seeing, uh, you know, stories from uh, construction managers, from business owners of, you know, they're, they're starting to lose workers. Um, farms, farmers are uh, losing workers. Construction sites are, um, you know, they're, they're having to delay projects and things of that sort. Uh, so we'll link a couple of those stories. I uh, would be curious to hear if you have any thoughts on Florida's immigration law and kind of what these articles are discussing um you know let us know your let us know your thoughts uh definitely curious to hear what everyone uh is thinking uh and so with that finn um we're gonna hop into our uh, conversation with uh helen fru and francois von Hussmalen. uh it was a lovely conversation uh with both these individuals they're part of the permits foundation which is an independent non not-for-profit organization that campaigns globally to improve work permit regulations, essentially so that partners of highly skilled international employees may directly access employment while in that host country. Uh, so great conversation coming up. Uh, just a quick note, though, however, uh, my I was having some computer problems, so I had to switch to a different device to, to, to record that conversation on my end, so my audio is not the best, so apologies in advance. Um, but hope everyone enjoys that conversation. Uh, which is coming up right now. And now I'd like to welcome Helen Fru and Francois Van Rosmolen, Rosmolen, excuse me, to Immigration and Mobility Decoded. 
Helen and Francois, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show today. So excited to have you on. Thanks very much. Thanks, Eric. Uh, I am so we're uh, we're so excited to to talk with you today. Uh, we've been you know talking about having you on the show for for a bit now. Um, we have a mutual connection. Sophie King she connected us, and mm-hmm. you know just over our email exchanges, I could tell that um, you know this is this is going to be a very very fun conversation uh, about your organization and and the work uh, that both of you do. Uh, but before we hop into you know the heart of our conversation today. I always, we always like to start each episode just getting to know our guests. And so, um, you know, Helen, uh, how are things going? And um, you and Francois are both based in the Netherlands. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Hi, Eric. Well, thanks. It's lovely to be here. Uh, Francois and I are very happy to be speaking with you and to your audience. And you're right. Yeah, we're calling in today from the Netherlands. Uh, so it's been very warm here of late, uh, uh, bearing in mind we don't have the air con uh, like you guys, so we are slightly relieved that the temperature here has now dropped a little. Um, but yeah, Permits Foundation, we're a Netherlands-based organisation, we're founded in The Hague, uh, but we are an international organisation, so our work is global. And just looking forward to telling you about our work around the world. Awesome. Yeah, I've ever, uh, we were chatting before we started recording and uh, I've never been to the Netherlands. It's definitely on my bucket list. Um, and, you know, on the show, uh, Finn and well, my co-host Finn and I, we have a running joke of, you know, the weather takes up a big portion of our conversations. And so yeah. I'm also very <laughs> jealous that um, of your current weather situation right now over here, I'm based in Chicago. And it is, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you know, there's the Canadian wildfires. And so yeah. a bunch of that smoke is kind of like settling over parts of the Midwest, including Chicago. So like the last couple of days that we've had some very bad air quality and it's just smelled like a giant campfire everywhere you go. Wow. No, I yeah. can't imagine. So you guys, you have to stay indoors. Yes. Yes. So that's the recommendation. Uh, you know, obviously people are still going, still going to baseball games and, and things of that sort. Um, but yeah, it's just wild, uh, wild the haziness that, that's out there. Um, you know, I'm spring in the summer, Helen and Francois. Um, you know, I guess Francois, I'll start with you. Uh, any uh, summer travel plans coming up uh, or any recent trips that you've been on? Well, I actually just returned from a trip to Finland, to Helsinki, um, Eric. Um, my first visit there, um, really enjoyed it. Um, I don't know if you've been <laughs> to Finland. Uh, it's an easy place to get around Helsinki. Um, did a lot of sightseeing and some great hikes. We are keen hikers. Uh, we went to um, a national park. Uh, it's called Nuisko. I don't know if I pronounced it correctly. Um, but that's an hour away from, from Helsinki. And of course, uh, there is a, a famous fort, uh, fortress, uh, which is a UNESCO heritage site. So we really enjoyed Helsinki and I can uh, warmly recommend it to everyone. That's for now. Um, no further plans yet, but I'm sure they will emerge in the coming weeks. That's awesome, Francois. I've, I uh, have never been to Helsinki, but similarly, I've heard a lot of awesome part, uh, things about it. How did you uh, decide to visit there? 
Oh, um, well, my husband had been there many, many years ago, and he, uh, I'm, I'm talking about 20 years ago, and, and we were looking for a place to go, and we like hiking. We didn't want to go to Switzerland. We've been hiking there a lot. Um, so this was something new. And, and um, you know, it's two hours flight from, from Amsterdam, so not too far away, same time zone, good weather, <laughs> not too warm, and, and, and good hiking, uh, hiking parks. Amazing, amazing. Uh, Helen, how about you? Uh, any recent trips or any, uh, any summer trips coming up? Well, you might have guessed by my accent that I'm not Dutch. Uh, I'm actually Scottish. So I for sure will be returning to Scotland this summer to see the family. Uh, I don't know if you know Scotland. I'm from the East Coast near St Andrews, the home okay. of golf, as it's known. So <laughs> my neck of the woods. Yeah, so it's, for me too, it's just a short hop from Amsterdam there over to Edinburgh. Nice, nice. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we're talking so many about uh, so many locations worldwide, and I feel I feel like a, a stereotypical American, and that I haven't visited these awesome spots. Um, uh, but I do know Scotland because it is obvious. It is, as I'm sure you know, Helen. It is a very popular filming uh, spot for a lot of um, television shows and movies. Um, I believe. Uh, I might need to double check. I feel like I should know this because I'm, I'm such a huge fan, but I'm pretty sure Game of Thrones did a lot of their filming in Scotland. Um, I think Scotland, maybe Northern Ireland as well, yeah. Yes, yes. So it's a very popular destination. So, um, And I know they do a, lot, a bunch of tours to see some of the spots, whether it's for Game of Thrones uh, or other big-name shows and movies. Um, so you could just kind of see those locations that we would be watching on our on our TV screens. Yeah. So um, you should go, Eric, to uh, to New Zealand too, to look yes. at where uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Lord Hobbit of the films. <laughs> yes, yes. I actually think I think that might be a possibility. I feel like the odds are going up. So my wife, uh, she works uh, for a. Um, a giant uh, uh, hamburger corporation that we know, uh, the Golden Arches, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. they're, they're. I'm hearing she might be going to Australia for for work related events, but I'll have to pay my way to go to join her. Um, yeah. And we, I think uh, we might be able to do Australia, New Zealand in the fall. Um, so Amazing. fingers crossed that that happens. <laughs> Hope so. Yes. Yes. Um, all right. So thank you both for, for sharing some of your travel details. Obviously, you know, since the show is focused on, you know, global mobility and immigration, I think it's always fun to just talk about, you know, upcoming travel and, and trips and whatnot. Um, and then before we hop into just talking a little bit more about Permis Foundation, uh, Helen Francois, I just want to say that uh, I'm very jealous of uh, your areas, your country's uh, biking network and just the uh, uh, different modes of transportation and and mm-hmm. everything that you have uh i there are a couple of youtube channels that i follow that have to do with uh like i, I would say like city planning or just looking at, at, at like how people get from a to b and uh obviously biking is a very 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 popular in the netherlands and uh the infrastructure supports it uh, more so than over here in the states, I mean, some cities, some areas uh, have pretty good biking infrastructure, but it definitely uh, lacks compared to, to where both of you are. Oh, yeah, I, I would recommend. I don't know if you follow the news from the Cycle Path, which is a BBC news reporter going around doing news news items, but she does it while she's cycling. Mm. Uh, I recommend it. It's really great. 
I'll have to check. I'll have to check her out. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I actually have not heard of her, so yeah, thank you for the recommendation. Yeah. Um, so, Helen Francois, let's. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about getting just uh, getting to know the Permits Foundation. Uh, so, Helen, can you tell us more about the Permits Foundation and the work that your organization does? Yeah, sure. So, um, Permits Foundation is a not-for-profit corporate initiative. And we are supported by over 40 major international sponsor companies and other organisations. Um, and what we do is we carry out advocacy at government level worldwide so that the partners of international employees can directly access employment in the host country. Um, and so the focus is on direct work access for partners of highly skilled international employees And when we say direct access, what we mean is that once the dependent status is recognised in the host country, the spouse or partner can work for any employer or carry out, ideally, to be able to carry out self-employment, no extra hurdles, no separate work permissions, uh, say, or tied to a specific employer. Um, And why do we do this? Well, Increasingly, dual careers, uh, they're, they're on the increase. The more often you see in the destination countries, the cost of living is high. Increasingly, the expectation is that both members of the couple can continue to work. And, and the thing is, they want to know this is possible before the move takes place. So what we see from companies is, increasingly, they find that they can't move their top talent to a country where there isn't this assured access to work for the partner and then they find that assignments are refused or cut short but where families can work they find that the employee experience is far better they can better integrate the country is seen as a more attractive business destination so it's an issue it's about talent attraction and retention but it's also about diversity and inclusion so uh, since we were founded, about I think it's 20 years ago, over 30 countries have legislated to enable dual careers in this way. And as far as we know, we're the only organisation that's advocating solely on this quite specific issue. Um, but we also work through a very collaborative approach with other like-minded organisations and companies. It's so great that we can uh, be here to speak with you today about our work. And we make representations to government, written and in person, just to keep that trend moving in the right direction. And then just finally, our work is evidence-based. So we carry out surveys to share the latest data with policymakers, with our network. And we work in the countries that matter most to our network of international employers and their employees. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing, Helen. you mentioned that, you know, employers, if, you know, if, if they're looking to send an employee on an overseas as, or on an assignment and maybe that country doesn't have the infrastructure in place to support a partner working, um, when would you say that the, you started to see that change? Like, has it always, uh, what, what, what was this uh, like back maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago? Uh, was a partner working at the forefront of the employee and the employer? Uh, no, we, the real changes only took place in the last 20 years, I'd say. Mm. I mean, Francoise will tell you about that, what happened over the history, but um, I think there were some big moments. Uh, the US actually was one of the first to allow work access. You, you would think 
but it, it was one of the first, um, although it was employment authorization documents, it wasn't completely direct. And then there were some massive steps along the way with the EU directives allowing sort of many EU member states, that was from like 2010, that was a real game changer as well. And then in between times, we've just had lots of other countries sort of, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it later, but uh, lots of other countries sort of adding in there as well into the mix. But yeah, I mean, I think it, I would say in the last, really, it's been in the last 20 years that we've seen the big changes. Got it, got it. And Francois, uh, are you, uh, any notable clients uh, that you are able to share that uh, you've worked with? Yeah. Well, for sure, we, we, we have the support um, of a large group of international organizations, both in the private and public sector, uh, Eric, about 40 plus, we call them sponsors. They are listed on our website, but you should think of um, the energy sector, the automotive industry, uh, the pharmaceutical sector, um, IT, um, service providers and consultants, and we have even the UN Secretariat supporting us. And these, we call them sponsors, we call them sponsors. They support us financially with a, a yearly donation and with some additional uh, resources to help us achieve our goals. Uh, some sponsors want to be more actively involved. We leave it to the, the, the sponsor, to the company, whether they want to um, you know, apart from giving a financial donation, uh, be more actively working with us. Uh, you should think of uh, participating in uh, our country networks. You know, in the countries where we uh, where we advocate, um, contribute content to our world map, and Helen will um, will speak about it uh, later in more detail. Writing letters of support for work. So all in all, I can say that we have a very um, loyal support group and um, uh, that have stayed loyal and supportive of our work almost since uh, startup. Awesome. Yeah, cover, yeah, it sounds like you guys cover a wide range of industries and work with companies and across all those industries. So that's really awesome. Uh, really awesome to hear. Yes, they... Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes, they recognize the importance of the work for their for their employees and the dual career uh, couples. Mm -hmm, definitely. And Francois, uh, as Helen mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, the Permits Foundation, uh, you guys have been around since 2001. How has your organization grown since then? Uh, yeah, we, we were founded, actually, to be correct, in June 2001 in the Netherlands. Oh. Uh, so almost 23 years ago, and, and we celebrated our 20th anniversary uh, in um, two years ago. Um, and uh, so we've grown uh, a lot since then. And I was going through our archive uh, earlier this week, and I came across the minutes of the first inauguration board meeting. Um, we started at the time with 15 sponsors seven board members and three patrons and since then we've grown to more than 40 sponsors we also have a far more global spread now and i, I can say i think i am allowed to say that permits foundation is now well recognized within the global mobility community and actually if i go back to the history I had a plan to set up the foundation 
um, initially grew among a group of HR professionals um, who came together and were discussing the challenges they faced um, regarding the move of their international staff due to dual careers and stringent work permit regulations for spouses and partners. They saw that it had an impact on employee mobility, um, assignment take-up, but also on diversity. And um, Eric, bear in mind that at the time, only the UK, Sweden, Australia, and if I'm correct, Venezuela, uh, gave direct uh, employment rights to spouses of expat workers. I mean, that's mm. what they were called at the time. We now refer to international employees. And of course, mm-hmm. within the EU countries, um, EU citizens could uh, freely move. And I think Netherlands and Canada had special concessions in place. But in the rest of the world, uh, the procedures could take several months. And, and these lengthy work permit processes represented a real deterrent both to dual career couples and to companies that might otherwise be prepared to employ partners. So they were thinking, what can we do to, 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 to solve this problem? Or what could we do to make it a little bit easier? And uh, they realized um, that the financial compensation for loss of income, contribution to pension schemes, wasn't going to solve the problem. Uh, partners don't want a gap in their career. They have their own individual career aspirations. And by taking this sort of work permit hurdle away, you take away a major obstacle because partners still face challenges. I mean, and I can talk about it later a little bit bit more, but finding a job um, in an unfamiliar location, um, maybe language barriers, but at least they have the certainty pre-move that they can work, something that Helen also underpinned in the beginning. And I think it's good to note also that accompanying partners should you know, in our view, really be seen as a company talent. Uh, the majority of partners, um, about 88%, according to our latest survey, and again, we will talk about the survey later too, hold uh, a bachelor degree or higher and have working experience in a broad range of sector. So a lot of talent is wasted. Um, and I think, sadly, that the majority of partners are still mainly women, though we have seen over the last 20 years a slight shift there. Um, And if I go also back um, to what really the idea, how came this idea of of trying to um, uh, influence work permit legislation, this this group of, uh, of HR professionals looked at the diplomatic world. Um, Governments uh, at the time were aware of dual career challenges and the need to address this problem for the partners of their own employees in the diplomatic community. And they addressed this issue where possible through bilateral agreements or MOUs. Uh, However, you know, this model would not work for international companies as they have a very diverse international workforce and many nationalities. But a seed was planted and having seen how the diplomats were trying to solve it, Permis Foundation uh, was launched in uh, in 2001. Thank you so much, Francois. 
for sharing uh, the history of the Permits Foundation. And, and something that you said, I think, really uh, resonated with me and I think uh, will what resonate with a, with a lot of our listeners and just and anyone else is you mentioned, you said that uh, partners are the same top tier talent and they shouldn't be wasted. And, and I completely agree. And you, you highlighted how a lot of uh, partners have that high, that education level uh, mm-hmm. where they are able to work in and, and secure, um, you know, good paying jobs and, and jobs that, that are great. And I think it makes sense that, and agree with Permits Foundation advocating for them and, and helping to secure, uh, you know, that, that work authorization for partners. Because I mean, if I were, I mean, if I look at it from my personal perspective and if I were in, in, in their shoes and, you know, my partner was offered a job elsewhere abroad and I wasn't, it would, it would be, it'd be a kind of a weird conversation to have yeah. or like, like how, how would we move forward with that if well, there's only one person is working and, you know, what does the other person do? And um, yeah. I know we're not going to focus too much on the economics of it or the economies of the world, but I think, you know, here in the States and I know in uh, the UK and I'm sure elsewhere, but, you know, we're still seeing the, you know, post pandemic effects, you know, high inflation, which affects uh, prices of everyday items, such as groceries, clothing. And if it, it can put a burden on, uh, on a household finances, if only one sort, if there's only one source of income. Oh, for sure, um, and 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 we've seen that we've that came out of our survey too that the need for dual income is 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 becoming um, bigger um, uh, because of the cost of living. Um, if you are, for example, uh, based in your host country is Singapore, uh, look at the, uh, the cost of living and um, you know the renting costs. So um, that's going to be a challenge. And as you say, Eric, um, I've lived abroad for 18 years. I've lived in in Southeast Asia and more recently in Kazakhstan, Switzerland and even China. Um, And I've witnessed from nearby um, the effect of uh, a partner not being able to work. Um, um, You know, I've seen uh, marriages even breaking down or assignments cut short split marriages. So this has a, a really a wide impact on many, many things. Definitely, definitely. So, uh, Helen, what countries does the Permits Foundation operate in? And the second part of that question, what countries can accompanying partners get a work permit in? Right. Well, uh, as mentioned, we're international, so uh, we operate globally, but um, we we operate based on the priority destinations that are related to us by our sponsors and our wider network, and also where opportunities arise to carry out advocacy. And I think this pretty much mirrors the top global mobility destinations where major international organisations are moving their staff or hiring their staff or looking to attract talent. And then on your second point, uh, where can accompanying partners get a work permit? Uh, I'd say, if I may, to your listeners while listening to this uh, podcast, if you would like to just go to Permits Foundation website, permitsfoundation.com, 
There we have a world map uh, feature, which is free to access. And this, I hope, is a really useful resource for your listeners because it shows at a glance uh, not only where there is direct work access, as we've mentioned, or not, as the case may be, um, but also it shows, for example, where there is same-sex uh, recognition, where non-married partners are, are able to access employment, recognise dependents, where partners can carry out self-employment. Uh, you can go there, you can look at countries, each country, you can see what the legislation is, what we as Permits Foundation are doing advocacy-wise or have done. And so that from that map, you can see there are over 30 countries that have at least one piece of legislation uh, where there is direct work access incident to dependent status. But to summarise, um, I would say you would see work access being more easily available across the EU. So that's around 27 countries, 27 member states. And, and by the way, Permits Foundation did a lot of work there to get, uh, to get the legislation uh, improved. The US, uh, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, uh, quite a few countries actually in South America. So Brazil, Argentina, Peru, Chile. And actually, while talking about the map, I'll give a shout out to our team member, Jen Vosler, who is carrying out the legal research right now in collaboration with our network, because we want to ensure that the map is always up to date. And it's a tool that's used by a lot of people. So I hope you don't mind, but I think it gives a really good summary of what the situation is, the green countries where the accompanying partners can work and uh, it's free to access. Awesome. Uh, no, totally love, love, love the shout out uh, for for the map. And uh, can uh, can you uh, repeat the website again, just so uh, and we can also put a link in in the description. But that is uh, permitsfoundation.com? Yeah, and forward slash world map, or you will just see it on the site there. You can you can get to it. Awesome, awesome. Uh, so, Francois, I know just a couple of seconds ago we were talking about some of the challenges that. Um, partners and, and you know our families might face if the partner is unable to secure a work permit or if a country doesn't offer one particularly in this age of you know high inflation high cost of living and rent and other other necessities um but i'm curious to hear uh what other challenge what challenges do partners face um if they're working um and do you have any insights on how to navigate these challenges. Yeah, yeah. so as I mentioned indeed, uh, Eric, that um, earlier that partners may face uh, challenges like language barriers. They have to build often their own professional network from scratch, adapt to a new work culture, to mention a few. But uh, companies do offer a form of assistance within their mobility programs for partners to help them settle into the host country and, and tackle these challenges. But what we found, and again, I'm going back to a survey, is that the opportunity given to partners to communicate their employment and career concerns with their partner employers falls short. And I think that is something that is important to note. And I want to quote some data here from the survey. Uh, we did a survey back in 2022. Um, the survey was aimed, uh, one section was aimed uh, towards HR global mobility professionals and a separate section for the partners of highly skilled employees. And on this topic, 
more than 60% of global mobility professionals um, uh, realized that dual careers and partner issues were becoming more important to their organizations. So it had an impact on their organizations. But uh, only 20% of partners said that they had been given an opportunity to, to communicate their concern about employment and career with their partner's organization. And they also said that, um, and about, I think it's 56%, Helen, if I'm correct, of partner respondents say that not being able to work has a negatively impacted their mental health. So the importance of partner support is clear. Um, and uh, the survey results clearly show that where companies engage with the whole family unit in the run-up, you know, it's before you go on relocation, that it is really appreciated and will have long-term gains. So employers are recognizing this, but uh, it's clear that there's still room for improvement. So more can be done, we feel, on opening the channels of communication on this and this issue, Eric. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francois, uh, so as you mentioned, your survey backs up that, you know, including the partner is yes. of increasingly importance. For companies who are, um, let's say, growing and are, you know, expanding their footprint and, you know, getting to that uh, stage in, in the company's lifespan, if you will, um, how do you recommend that they focus on this and focus on ensuring that partners are able to work if they maybe hadn't even thought about it before? Yeah, I think starting to, uh, to, to talk with partners, talk with the whole family unit to understand the challenges that they face. And of course, then... Um, they're, you know, uh, adding that to the adding sort of also partner support, financial support into their uh, mobility programs, their policies. And of course, there are um, these uh, service providers who really give the sort of um, support uh, to the family, not only the relocation support, but also more the career uh, support. Um, that's what I would advise um, for them to do. But also to, first to start listening to the concerns and, and, and trying to um, weave that into their uh, mobility policy. I think, yes, I think uh, what you just said there, listening is the key. Um, and I, I think that obviously applies for for a lot of aspects of yeah. of our lives, but listening is of utmost importance. Yeah. And acting, of course. Uh, yes. on, on <laughs> listening is one, and then uh, taking it on board and trying to uh, to integrate that in in their mobility policies and uh, make it part of uh, the assignment uh, contract between uh, the family and the employer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's, that's great. That's great. Um, so, Helen, uh, as we record this, um, you know, it's almost the end of June. Uh, it is Pride Month. Um, and so I'm wondering, I'm curious, um, when we talk about partners, um, I think there's a 
how do we define partners? Uh, maybe mm-hmm. is one way one way to phrase it. So I, I think there's of the like traditional sense, um, but I'm wondering, has that changed in, in recent times? Um, is it purely a you know a man and a woman married, or are more countries and employers you know recognizing that partners can mean um, LGBTQ plus, um, you know, uh, and others who maybe are not married, but consider themselves partners. Um, just wondering, uh, do couples need to be married? Mm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, when we started, I think there was at that time, the sort of more traditional view that we're talking about a male corporate transferee and their female spouse, uh, going to the, the, destination country and I think that the the picture now is so different and inclusive global mobility programs need to appeal to all types of families and so our work we try to reflect that and we we know it matters to our sponsors we ask we within our surveys uh, and with our wider network so we in fact in our latest survey we asked which family members should be included in the definition of family members who should have access to work And it was clear from that there was support for married and non-married partners, including same-sex couples. And and even broader than that, for half of respondents, there was support for work authorisation for other family members like children of a working age. So when we carry out our advocacy, when we write to or meet with government officials, we do this sensitively, but we do emphasise that best practice is a direct work access, but also we advocate for a more inclusive definition of eligible family members. And we also, from the map you see there, that's why we we have diff- we have the sort of more interactive features where you can see where which countries are implementing more inclusive policies. Got it, got it. So uh, both Francois and Ali have both been um, mentioning uh, this 2022 survey. So I'm wondering if we can dive a little bit deeper into this. Um, You you conducted the survey in 2022. Um, Can you talk about a little bit more about the survey and, you know, the importance of international mobility and some of the benefits of international assignments and organizations? Yeah, happy to do so. Uh, as mentioned, we did the survey in 2022, and um, it was aimed. One section was, uh, was aimed at HR, global mobility professional, and one section at partners. And one of the questions uh, we asked: What is the why is international mobility so important for companies, for organizations? And the biggest asset cited by HR professionals, and I think it was almost 100 percent. Let's say between 90 and 100 percent was that international assignments facilitates transfer of knowledge, um, skills, and technology, Um, talent and uh, leadership development are also important drivers. And I think we should not forget the sort of development of a global mindset um, perspective, exposure um, to different cultures, business practices, and ways of thinking. Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is always is also important. And I think, last but not least, I think it can boost it boosts employee engagement and and retention, which is very important these days. 
and ultimately um, this this all contributes to um, an okay organization's competitiveness growth and uh, ultimately also success so this is what HR professionals um, mentioned in, in, in the report as being uh, the important drivers for international mobility. Mm. Got it, got it. And Francois, what are some of the top reasons for providing dual career assistance to partners of international employees? Yeah. Um, I think it ultimately comes down to uh, that where there is um, direct, uh, clear, and an efficient process in place that allows partners to work in the host country, employers um, can better harness talent. Um, countries become more attractive business destinations, and I think family experience sort of improved health, well-being, and integration outcomes. And some of the da- data is very striking. And I want just to show how important dual career assistance is because 26% of partners that were um, that completed the survey were considering leaving the host country due to work access restrictions. So 26% of partners. And this was also mirrored um, in the employer section of the survey where in 44% um, of the organizations, um, and I'm just checking if I'm saying this correct, yes, 44% of organizations, employees had returned home early from an assignment in the past three years due to the concern about partner's employment. So I think this shows clearly why this is such a key issue. And I think it's shocking when you consider uh, the cost of a failed assignment for the employer and the impact this has on on the family. So um, I think this really, again, underpins how important uh, the dual career assistants and dual careers are in the international environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you say the, the, the cost of failure, yes. is that a monetary cost like are you are, are you able to like say or as an organ like say that this cost x number of dollars and it resulted in yeah. failure or are you saying more like holistically that it's a combination of monetary but also maybe then the employee leaves the company because of the like their partner yeah. couldn't get work I think it's both, Eric. And mm. um, we've been trying really to get a sort of, you know, return on investment, a sort of um, idea of the cost. Um, I, I was, you know, referring back to the um, to going to the archive uh, earlier this week. I came across uh, an article, but you have to bear in mind, I'm quoting something 23 years ago, where a CEO of a big uh, company said that um, an international assignment is uh, four times more expensive than a local uh, a, a local manpower. So, um, and then you're not even including um, um, uh, housing uh, and other things. So just bear that figure in mind, and I think we can multiply that even nowadays. It is expensive, and um, it comes as a huge cost, monetary cost for uh, for the employer, 
but uh, don't forget uh, the impact it has on uh, on the employee and and the family and it may even result in uh, in someone leaving the the company got it got it Helen, what are the top destinations for assignments when it comes to access for employment? Uh, I think you mentioned a few countries uh, at the start of the show. Um, I'm wondering, wondering if you can dive a little bit more into some of these countries. Yeah. So if we're talking about is it where it's easiest to get work access as an accompanying partner, uh, I think I would say then that we, we always point to the EU as being pretty good. Uh, that's because there are two overarching directives. So we've got the intercompany transferee directive, the blue card directive. They both allow direct work access for family members. So it's broader than just uh, the spouse or partner. And we actually did a lot of advocacy there over many years to help bring that about. And then in the EU in parallel, member states have their own national laws too, how they interpret the, the overarching directives or have their own national legislation. Some are better than others, uh, but I, I think, you know, being in the Netherlands, I have to give a shout out to the Netherlands. It's pretty good. The UK has always been good, uh, as Francoise mentioned. Uh, further fields, we see more and more countries just openly recognising that there is the link between partner work access and attracting the talent that is needed. Uh, so I'd say maybe Canada would be up there. Uh, and we're actually really keeping an eye on these new initiatives that are coming out to attract, to attract tech talent uh, in Canada. But really, I mean, I would say look at the map, the world map on the website, because most of the green countries that we have on there have a, at least one piece of legislation that has improved the employee and the employer experience uh, for international companies on the issue. For sure, yes. I actually have been keeping up, trying to keep up with that Canada news as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, came out earlier this week. I feel like they're always, uh, always uh, making, uh, looking to attract. They're they're definitely making a lot of enhancements to their immigration and mobility system to to attract immigrants and their families and really make position themselves as a welcoming destination yeah. uh, for everyone. Indeed. Helen, so second part, I guess, follow-up. What countries um, have work to do when it, to, to, to change partner access? Yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of countries globally where the, the spouse or partner doesn't get work access, didn't get direct work access, incident to their dependent status, too many to mention. Um, I'd say probably every country has in some respect something that can be bettered, even the even the countries that do have legislation, say with the process, the costs or with inclusivity. So what as Permits Foundation we tend to do is we focus on, say, a top five or six countries per year that matter most to our network. So right now our prior, six priority countries are the US, Singapore, China, India, South Africa and Ireland. And that's quite a range. They're all different uh, because some say, like, like the US and Ireland, we have actually on the map is green because they do have legislation that allows direct work access, but it's for certain highly skilled categories, but not all. So mm-hmm. the US, so we were so delighted when L&E spouses got work authorization incident to dependent status. But 
obviously there is more to do. I mean, the US is always the top country where our network would like to see further change. So say for H4O spouses, say for non-married partners, and also just around the processing, the costs, uh, the lengthy processes of work authorization in general. And so we're actually right now developing a new US position paper. We always welcome feedback uh, from companies on the main issues faced. Um, and then, uh, say, Singapore, uh, you take that country, there is a more restrictive environment now than, say, pre-2021. So previously, many spouses could access work via a fairly straightforward letter of consent route. And that's really been narrow, narrowed down. So we continue to relay our concerns there with the ministry. And then looking at India, China and South Africa, none of those countries have direct work access at all. So achieving that would be more likely, I'd say, in India, where we have been working for many years to try to bring about work authorization for spouses of intracompany transferees. And we have a fantastic local network there. We have had a company roundtable. We've had meetings with government ministers. And our recommendation has generally been positively received. So it would be really something if we saw some movement in India. And then you, you contrast that, say, to China, where the uh, ask is much more difficult. In fact, we held off a lot of our advocacy during lockdown because it, it just wasn't something that was feasible at the time. And now we're really just at the start of the process there. So looking to raise awareness of the issue, uh, achieve greater clarity around the existing rights for accompanying family members. And then looking at South Africa, uh, achieving change in South Africa would be wonderful, uh, as there are no countries that we know of on the continent that authorise spouses to work incident to dependent status. So in South Africa, there have been some signals in recent green and white papers that this is being considered now. And we have, of course, submitted evidence to those. But then you have that against a backdrop of high unemployment. Uh, so that's a challenging environment to achieve change. And so I would say we are completely realistic with our advocacy. Um, change can take years. <laughs> It doesn't happen overnight, but what we see is change does happen and there is a trend for more and more countries to, to change the legislation. Got it. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, change can take years, can take a while, um, but I feel most of the time it moves. Things mm -hmm. do change. And I think for a lot of countries, uh, definitely for the better uh, when it comes to mobility and allowing partners to work and families to come over and everything related. Um, yeah, obviously we're based on, I'm in the States. So uh, yeah, I, I think exactly everything you mentioned about the States, um, you know, the change here is definitely very slow. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, mm -hmm. I'm glad, but glad you're advocating, uh, you and the organization are advocating for, for additional changes and, and really pushing for that. I think we've learned that, uh, you know, we should keep on persisting and not giving up. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's uh, I think, very important, uh, Helen, that we, we know that yeah. uh, we keep on knocking on doors and, and, and making the point. And even if you plant a small seed, at least it's beginning. Uh, yeah. Yes. 
exactly, exactly. So, Helen, um, as we look to kind of wrap up uh, our conversation today, um, what are some exciting developments that you're watching? Well, I think it's really interesting to see how different governments are tackling the potential demographic challenges they know they'll face long term further down the line, uh, the skills gaps and shortages in certain sectors. And often that's vis-a-vis the political climate in a country, perceptions around migration, uh, being fair to the local population. So we know that uh, governments do recognise the link between partner employment and attracting skills, needed skills. Uh, And so we were just talking there about Canada, and I think that's really interesting to see how they're taking a more open approach. And they've, I mean, they've been implementing partner work access, not just for the highly skilled categories, but also other categories. Um, Then we just saw in the past few days, there are other pathways opening up to attract H1B talent from the U.S., Um, And I was also just mentioning Singapore. Actually, we've seen some encouraging signs in Singapore. The one pass for the top, top talent, uh, which is now opening up that letter of consent route again for spouses to work. So we we consider that a good sign. And uh, one other country I mentioned is Ireland. In Ireland, we are really hopeful that the partners of intra-company transferees will be granted work access incident to dependent status. It's one of the last countries in the European region not to enable that. And we know that from uh, employers there, there's a lot of tech companies there. It's really hampering their ability to bring in talent. So we actually just in the past couple of weeks sent in a big submission to the government departments in support of that recommendation. It's actually on our website if, if anyone's interested in that. So I'd say Ireland could be one to watch. Those are all very, very exciting. Uh, thank you for, for, for sharing. And I, I do agree that the demographic issues are, at least to me, particularly interesting um, in that it seems that a lot of these countries are either starting or in the midst of demographic challenges kind of at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it uh, potentially can be attributed to, at least in the States, um, you know, certain generations reaching that retirement age and uh, the economy needing to, to replace them with, you know, able-bodied workers uh, across all industries. Um, and it seems that, as you mentioned, Helena, like countries recognize the, this, this, this challenge um, and, and seemingly most of them are addressing it. Uh, but then there are a handful that are maybe, uh, moving a little bit more slow. Um, we won't name yeah. any names. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Not naming names, but it's, you know, just seeing like articles in uh, New York Times, Bloomberg or Wall Street Journal. And, you know, I just, it, it just, just highlighting the, the statistics, the, the demographics. And it's, it's definitely an upcoming challenge. And if countries don't move to address it, um, you know, I think then there'll be, challenges on top of the challenges yeah exactly that's, i think that's what we're talking about you know change happens eventually and i think it's, yeah it's just realism uh and yes that's, that's what we expect exactly uh and then francois um not to give you the the, the doom and gloom question <laughs> um but you know obviously you know helen helen just mentioned you know the you know some exciting developments and i think you know as 
as for all of us at whether work or personal, it's always important to also look at, you know, the potential downsides or uh, potential issues. Um, so Francois, I'm curious, you know, as we continue to move out of the pandemic era, in your opinion, what are some emerging issues um, in addition to the demographics uh, slice of the pie? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we, we asked um, this question in our survey, you know, what is the impact of the pandemic uh, and the lessons learned? And we, the feedback we got, we know now that international families, so those who are potentially going on an assignment, are far more discerning about future assignments and give more consideration to the host country's healthcare system and medical facilities, um, which is, of course, um, understandably, or, you know, a survey was done at the end of the pandemic era, and uh, and this uh, during COVID had been, uh, you know, an important uh, an issue, a concern. And there's also a growing expectation of a duty of care on the part of the employer. So in that sense, um, uh, the employee and the family are, are, are expecting a little bit more from the employee, the duty of care. Um, and apart from that, and I think that will resonate with, with many listeners, um, the, the pandemic has also brought a spotlight on remote working. And this won't come as a surprise. And uh, just to quote uh, some stats from um, from the survey, um, 60% of global mobility professionals had been asked by uh, their employees about the right of their partner to work virtually. And uh, 30% of partners said that they would like to work remotely for an employer based in another country. We know that this remote working has always been like self-employment, something that uh, if you're a partner and you move uh, from country to country, that that is sort of, in a way, an, an easy portable skill. Um, but um, many, many uh, more issues are attached to this. And I won't go into that yet, because, but we do recognize that this is a significant topic for us going forward. Uh, and that we will look, um, you know, at, at remote working um, 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 more intensely or we will research this further. And then our work is also about contributing to diversity, equity and inclusion. I don't want to repeat myself, but accompanying partners are predominantly women. Uh, though I said, we see a small shift uh, here. And as Helen said, more and more international dual career couples are not married or same sex. And where there is reduced partner access in the host country, uh, these group, groups are often affected. So um, these are the things that, that we see and that we will try to sort of um, take forward in, in our advocacy. So I hope this, this answers your question a little bit, Eric. It does. It does. That's that's a very uh, insightful answer. Uh, insightful answer, and I think um, the emerging issues that you highlighted uh, will make for future some good episodes in the future. So we'll need to have uh, both of you back on to discuss <laughs> your findings and recommendations. 
Absolutely. <laughs> happy to do so. Awesome. Um, so, Helen and Francois, I, I can't thank you enough uh, for, for hopping on the show today. Uh, just a couple questions to, to wrap things up. Um, Francois, where can, uh, where can people find you um, as well as the Permits Foundation? Yeah. As Helen mentioned, um, our website, uh, www.permitsfoundation.com, um, where um, you can also find uh, information on the survey reports. We've been referring to that. And they are available on our website. So all the information as a not-for-profit organization, foundation, we are very transparent. All our information uh, can be seen on our website so also the survey reports, it's under the heading resources. Also where at the top of a website, you've got uh, different headings and under the heading resources, you can find uh, the survey reports we've been referring to. Um, uh, people uh, can sign up for our newsletter. If um, someone is interested to, to learn more about uh, what we're doing, um, Helen and I are happy to set up a call. They can contact us via our website again. Um, and I want to highlight that we um, are going to um, organize um, a conference. Uh, finally, again, uh, an in-person conference um, next year, the second quarter of 2024. And we may potentially be hosting a roundtable in the US uh, later this year, but that's still something that needs to be decided. So, um, you know, I really want to say our website is the first uh, sort of source of information. And from there on, we are happy to, to connect with whoever is interested uh, to learn more about our work. Awesome. Well, uh, got the website. Uh, sounds like there might be a couple of events coming up that people can find uh, find you at, as well as uh, additional, uh, you know, and the Permits Foundation. Um, so I think with that, uh, you know, Francois and Helen, uh, it's been lovely talking with both of you today. Uh, thank you so much for shedding more light and sharing insights on, you know, partner work, uh, you know, some of the countries that are making strides to make it easier for partners to work and, you know, and obviously additionally highlighting countries that, you know, where work needs to be done. Um, so really appreciate you taking the time out today to, to share all these uh, exciting details. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, thanks. Eric. Thanks for the opportunity to raise awareness of our work. That's great. Definitely, definitely. Um, all right. Well, Helen and Francois, thank you so much and have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks. You too.